everyone, and Happy New Year. Welcome to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House, which focuses on international climate politics and the UN climate negotiations. I'm Anna Oberg. I'm a research associate at Chatham House, and I'm here today in the Chatham House recording studio with my colleague and podcast co-host, Anthony Froggett. Hey, Anthony, how are you doing? Great. Really good to be here. Nice. I hope you had a nice Christmas. Excellent. Thanks. So this is the first episode we're releasing in 2023. And I think it's a really exciting one that sets us up nicely for the rest of the season. What we'll be doing is first to take a look back at what happened at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh late last year. And then we'll move on to discuss what issues that will shape the international climate agenda in 2023. To do this, I interviewed Laurence Toubiana, who is CEO of the European Climate Foundation, chair of the Board of Governors at the French Development Agency and a professor at Sciences Po. Before joining the ECF, Laurence served as France's climate change ambassador and special representative for COP21, and she was a key architect behind the Paris Agreement. She has also been a high-level champion for climate action. Hope you enjoy listening. Laurence, good afternoon, and thank you so much for taking the time to be interviewed for this episode of The Climate Briefing. Thank you, and uh, very happy and honoured to be invited to your podcast. I would like to begin by talking about COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. What do you see as the main outcomes from that conference? My takeaway is on the inside, meaning the result of the discussion and negotiation are twofold. One is clearly uh, the acceptance of recognising the responsibility of climate impacts on more vulnerable countries, that has been translated into the acceptance on the loss and damage fund or facility or whatever we finally will call it. It has achieved a significant breakthrough for the most vulnerable countries. It was always a dream of them. And in a way, COP27 has to, to deal with this loss and damage issue after a particular terrible year in 2022, where, of course, a number of catastrophes have been piling up, including, of course, the terrible example of Pakistan. So now it is enshrined and on track to start running in 2023. A lot of work have to go into detail, but the principle is in place, and that is a significant mindset shift as climate impacts start to bite. And it was really a taboo before this COP, in particular from some developed countries, in particular United States, but not only them. So I think uh, this is a, a, a very significant result. Again, nobody knows how much funding will be, in a way, mobilized. But at the same time, it put the radar and the highlight of the need to reform, and I will come to that in a few minutes, on the financial international financial system reform. So on the political side, it's interesting to see how finally there is a change in politics from COP26 from in Glasgow as a result of diplomatic efforts laid by AOSIS and the G77 in China. So it is important to notice that because it will have, of course, impact in the future. We can, in a way, we witness there a big unity between within the G77 when we know that there are some distances and friction about the status of the less developed countries in the negotiation where most emerging countries are blocking on the side of the ambition most of the time. And in a way, the AOSIS case or the AOSIS concern are not only or 
overly, uh, in a way, promoted by uh, the group of the G77 general, and in particular, the emerging countries. So I think it's very good we have now a language on developing countries that are particularly vulnerable, and it's not every uh, developing countries are the same. And this notion of vulnerability will be very important. Imagine for houses who are most of the time middle-income countries and, not, for example, not eligible to IDA. Uh, this, in a way, the, the, the grant element of the World Bank funding, but now they are recognized as vulnerability is, is a criteria. The second, in a way, big outcome, in my view, is uh, breaking the taboo again, a, a new one, around our broken international financial system. It's not new. We have been discussing on the World Bank role on the IMF limits, the problem of debt related to climate impacts. But what we have seen in written in the text of COP27, a momentum building behind the push to restructure the World Bank and IMF with really a momentum and an opportunity that was not existing before. And this is meaningfully supporting the more vulnerable and the rapid ramp-up of renewable, and that the two elements that are, you know, where the demand on this international financial system, which for the moment cannot deliver it. And the all eyes on Bridgetown, the spring meetings, Bridgetown is the agenda that the Prime Minister of Barbados set up some months ago. And now that uh, President Macron uh, decided to organize together with Mia Motley uh, summit in June, we see that the idea of really moving and not going into circle, which is the characteristic of the discussion on the international financial system until now. African small islands and other developing country leaders use the stage of COP27 to set out visionary and transformative climate agenda, in particular in adaptation as well. And these have been fueled by political momentum around the urgency of unlocking the scale of finance needed for rapid climate action and addressing climate impacts, including through global financial system reform. So in a way, and for me, it's a in the real implementation now of the Article 2 of the Paris Agreement, uh, referring, of course, to finance, uh, which is really to move this flow of money to the ecological transition and, uh, in a way, the prevention of climate, major climate impacts. So I think now it's a responsibility of many actors who are not, of course, part, parts of the UNFCCC, the investors, the central banks, the international financial institution, just to say then that the climate agenda cannot just be on the side, remains an ambiguous direction of travel and a critical path for delivering transformative outcomes from developing countries. So that the positive elements I am gathering around this COP27, but of course there are a number of really worrying evidence that, that showed up into COP27. First of all, I think is to see that the fossil lobbies, fingerprints are everywhere in the agreement as they battle the inescapable phase-out of their billion of dollars subsidies. These terms phase-out fail to make the final tax. We all have a target for next year because now they, they have even lowered and weakened the language of Glasgow. The second element, of course, and we see that in the call for clean energy, 
that the clean energy now include in reality an abated use of fossil oil or gas or even even coal uh, because this idea that there are clean energy out of fossil fuel is certainly an element that of course is coming from the oil and gas petrostates egyptian presidency produced a text that clearly protects their view which is that oil and gas are part of the uh, energy transitions and of course uh, this will be uh, even more uh, in discussion at the cop 28 at the end of this year a very limited reference to science and a 1.5c and a weekend ndc uh, nationally determined contribution language so that is really a quite downside of this cop and of course we saw divergences and uh, multi- multilateralism not really supported by by the process itself we see that now on one side the cop 27 shows that it works but it needs much more national pressure everywhere to implement what uh, has to be done so you know we're looking for cop 28 and we certainly will develop this idea later on the uae presidency has an opportunity to offer a model for its post fossil leadership and lead by example in the region and in particular because there is a global stock takes this year and of course has to put mitigation and 1.5 c degree at the center stage so it will be impossible this time to hide again that Thank you so much. That's a super interesting overview of the main outcomes of COP27 and there's a lot in that answer that we could discuss in more detail. I'd like to start with this issue of loss and damage and you mentioned that in the past this has been a taboo issue and that we've seen a significant shift in the positions of developed countries on this issue. What factors do you think were most important in enabling this shift in position on the part of developed countries? I think it's basically the evidence of the climate impacts which now is combined with in a way huge macroeconomic impacts on many developing and vulnerable countries and the reality of the debt uh, increasing debt of fragile countries because of you know an increasing impact of climate and of course the destruction on a lot of capital invested and the incapacity to rebuild that in a way that was a, the understanding that we cannot just separate the problem of the climate impacts and damages in in way induced by climate impacts from the general economic situation and that in my view has stricken a chord that just you cannot ignore that and again the 2022 year with all these dramatic events everywhere just all over the world there was no region that hasn't suffered has in a way changed in a way the my mindset of course it was the last minute decision in particular for Europe first and the US later to agree on something they rejected the year before in Glasgow but i think it's basically the the evidence in a way Uh, that has uh, makes a change and the moral possibility to deny these facts so i think that in a way the things that at least the uh, scientific evidence and the uh, well the all the evidence the social and the economic evidence cannot be uh, hidden and put under a carpet and in in a way us as well as all developed countries have an interest not to break unfccto talks 
and that the same on the China side. And all these big emerging countries were not in particular enthusiastic about the loss and damage because the responsibility is certainly now shared between developed countries and their stock of emission over time. And actually already, for example, the Chinese emission that are having, well, have a heavy weight, both at already at historical level and of course uh, in the global emission measurement. So that basically what, in my view, make the thing plus a good diplomacy. And that's why I link the two elements. The idea that we don't have a solution the finance solution, the pursuing these 100 billion a year uh, and even uh, reaching them and even increasing the numbers are totally inadequate vis-a-vis what is happening now at the, the global economy level. So I think that's why it's sort of momentum of awareness and a wake-up call that this, this COP has delivered. During COP27, we saw U.S. and uh, China announcing that they would resume cooperation on climate change after China, of course, having suspended it earlier in the year. How important was this for COP27 and what does this mean for global cooperation on climate change going forward? The announcement, of course, was good. I don't know how deep it will go in reality, given the the level of tension between the two uh, superpowers. So it was just a good a good sign. They could not agree on the declaration. They try really very seriously, but they could not agree. And in particular, because of course of the willingness of US to act for a joint responsibility of China in particularly defending of uh, such future loss and damage facility. So let's see. I think uh, the signal is important. The signal is important that EU wants to continue to work with China on climate. I think uh, the door has to be kept open. There is no solution without China, evidently. But of course, the tension are, are really uh, very, very high. And now it's combined with trade and technology sharing, etc., which in a way doesn't mean this cooperation is very easy to handle. Thanks. You mentioned that the outcome on mitigation was a bit of a disappointment. What more would you have liked to see happen at COP27 on this issue? And why, in your view, was not a more ambitious outcome achieved? So if we look back in 2020, if you're reading the, what we put in the Paris Agreement, you know, in Paris, countries came with intentional climate plans, what we call intended national determined contribution, which is a really weird jargon we had in the convention and in the Paris Agreement. Why this? Because it was the first time a global agreement was signed off and um, most of the countries presented their plan before agreeing on the rules in the Paris Agreement. So we put that mention that by 2020, when the Kyoto Protocol will be in a way over, countries could come with their final decision on their national climate plans. That's why, in a way, when the Paris Agreement will enter into force, even if it has legally entered into force before that, but 2020 was a date where countries has to come with their finalized climate plans in a clear regulatory framing, which is, of course, the finalization of the Paris Agreement in December 2015. 2020, we could not have the COP, so it was in Glasgow. 
and it was very difficult within this stop of the climate diplomacy because of COVID, and of course, building on the position of the Trump administration. So give very, very little time to Biden, new government on one side and other countries really uh, to prepare for this COP in 2021 in Glasgow. So there was modest announcement in Glasgow, but then, and looking at the science and the more recent IPCC report, the decision which was in a way put down in Glasgow was that we will accelerate the uh, ratcheting up mechanism in Paris that every country could come, one has to come with better climate plans, which was decided in Paris. And then uh, we have to revise them as soon as we can because lagging behind because of COVID, the US attitude and many others. So Glasgow put forward the idea that maybe we could not achieve this revision of the climate plans in time by 2021, but it has to be done at COP27, and it hasn't happened really. So all the bets were on, can we push some countries, the major emitters in particular, to revise their contribution? Because of course, this support from the international community, you, you know, or anyway, a big effort has been made to vis-a-vis -vis South Africa, who has actually put forward a much better plan but India, Indonesia, Indonesia did better as well, but far from the result we were looking for, which is halving the global emission by 2030. So there was not a real push for a mitigation ambition, mostly because most countries were probably EU on one side, US on the other side, concerned and mobilized around their own political concern internally, EU evidently because of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, but nevertheless, we, we felt short about mitigation. And that was a critique, which I don't feel is, is really valid, but that focusing on adaptation and loss and damage has in a way weakened the pressure for ambition. And so this cannot be repeated, of course. I don't believe that it was a very necessary step forward. We need really to invest in adaptation in a much clever way. But nevertheless, uh, we cannot miss again the deadline next year. Yes, I'd like to look ahead now. Which issues do you think will dominate the international climate change agenda in 2023? And what are the, the main things that we should watch at COP28? Looking back to COP27, there was a big battle around 1.5 degrees C, which of course uh, was a last final mile in, in the Paris discussion. It was really, really the, the last mile in the Saturday morning. We got that. Now you see this is challenged regularly by a number of countries. And what does it mean? It means that uh, it delays action for later, and in particular with vis-a-vis -vis this global goal of halving emission by 2030. So the main concern will be uh, to maintain that line, but to now translate that in action. And uh, we see in a way precise activities that could deliver on that, not only defining uh, more ambitious climate plans and in a way looking at Brazil, we can hope that another emerging country will come with a forceful view. And you know that Brazil is as a candidate for the COP in 2025. So 
I think anyway, we we will sh- then the pressure will be on mitigation th- this year. But you see that action, concrete action and plans on methane, in particular, the push for renewable energy on the other side will be key factors of the success of the COP28. But there is another factor, which will be the attitude and strategy of the exporters of oil and gas, because it has to come from them largely, uh, because again, as I said, they pushed for a weakened language on subsidies on fossil fuel on one side, and on the other side that clean energy is not only renewable energy from solar, wind, or geothermal. It's about oil and gas with, of course, carbon uh, capture and storage. That's what they presented as the transition. They will argue that uh, gas and oil are necessary in the transition, and they would like to legitimize that in all the plans that countries or investors, everyone could have. And we see that tension already, in a way, the battle in the United States on the ESG, the consideration of uh, investors dropping investment uh, of their portfolio in oil and gas. You see the battle in many places in a moment where, of course, uh, particularly European countries, desperately looking for alternative sources of oil and gas. So I think this will be a dominant feature of COP28, how much license to operate we give to the sector. Do we have a view, for example, following the recommendation of the International Energy Agency of no more exploration, no more new fields, where at the moment where many African countries and others are asking for investment in their new resources they discovered. And at the moment where Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, of course, have a lot more power because of the booming oil market. So uh, that will be the the geopolitics that will play enormously in COP28. But I think on on the ground, we see that countries around the world are increasing their ambition to scale up renewable energy. There was many pledges to increase their renewable energy targets. There were alliances to accelerate deployment of offshore wind and new REST business coalition. But that has not been highlighted enough, in my view, on that part. But the problem will be, uh, what do we call in COP28 energy security? Is this renewable energy deployment or is this, again, a maintenance of our addiction to fossil fuel? That will be the great question for COP28. Laurence, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. It's been really interesting getting your insights. Thank you so much again. Thank you. So I found that discussion really fascinating. I think it's clear that a lot of progress was made at COP27, not least on this issue of loss and damage, but that much work remains to be done. Anthony, I wanted to ask you, was there anything that surprised you in what Laurence was saying or anything that you found particularly interesting? Yeah, I mean, I think as insightful as always from Laurence, I guess I took away a number of issues. So maybe if I could go through those step by step. Firstly, in terms of the science, her saying science wasn't reflected strongly enough within the final documents. And I would agree. I I think this is where we continue to have this mismatch. What we're seeing in terms of impacts is on a nearly on a day-by-day basis, globally, more extreme weather events. I mean, just to give two examples, as, as, as we start the new year, 
we're expecting 2022 to lead have led to 1.15 degrees of global warming above pre-industrial level. So we're already three quarters of the way or two thirds of the way to the 1.5 degree target. So temperatures are rising rapidly. And this is leading to really quite accelerated extreme weather events and things like increased sea level rise. So WHO just before COP27 announced that over the last 18 months, there'd been five millimeters of increase in average global sea rise. So we are starting to see these impacts across the world. So very clear, those impacts aren't driving enough the science in, in terms of the language that's being used and then adopted by the politicians. So I really, in terms of one thing that looking for or looking to this year is when the International Panel on Climate Change published its synthesis report. So we, we've already had working groups one, two, and three. And so that synthesis report is an important occasion where we're seeing these, these different streams of science being brought together and hopefully signaling the urgency for, for more action. So the science, is, as one thing was pointed out, the other thing that I thought Laurence emphasised quite strongly was the extent to which fossil fuels, or, or she saw that fossil fuels had their fingers, I think, the language across the whole of the text. And I think this is a concern that people were raising before. And I think there is concern as UAE, as a major, in particular, gas producer, is hosting uh, COP28, something that will be people will be looking towards. And only this week, we've seen the announcement that the, the head of ADNOC, which is the, the UAE state-owned oil company, will be heading the, uh, the president of COP. So very clear, some people might look at that as well as an advantage, an opportunity, because has has a, a foot in both camps in some ways. But others are, have, have been sort of quite outraged in terms of the people suggesting that you wouldn't put an armed salesman in charge of the peace talks. So really quite uh, something to, to really watch, the extent to which the, the industry influences the language and is, is something that people, as I said, are, are quite concerned about. And maybe two other points that I think is, is worth highlighting for this year. One is, as, as was mentioned, the, the global stock take. So this is an important occasion, I, I believe, for us to, on the international level, to as the name suggests, take a step back and look where we've got to. Where are we in terms of meeting the Paris pledges? And so that will inform future NDCs, but I also hope informs the people raising ambition in the existing NDCs rather than the future NDCs. And then the final point that I took from Laurence's uh, excellent analysis was the question about the geopolitics and the multilateralism. And we know that 2022 was a difficult year for a number of reasons, obviously Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the increased tension between China and in particular the United States, but also China and other parts of the world, and to some degree the, the the separation of or the breakdown of some of the multilateral processes. So one would hope that we overcome some of these in, in 2023, and that then feeds into a, a more positive atmosphere around COP28. Yeah, we're heading for another very important year for international climate action and cooperation. I agree with everything you said. And I, I also think in addition to that, that loss and damage will be another key issue to watch. This was, of course, as, as Laurence emphasized, one of the key issues and one of the major outcomes at COP27. And we do have this agreement now to create the fund as part of a wider set of loss and damage funding arrangements. But there are so many questions yet to be worked out in this space. It is not clear yet which countries, for instance, that will be eligible to receive support from this fund. It is not clear who will contribute financially to the fund. And it's not clear what these other funding arrangements will look like and, and what type of activities this fund will support. So 
At COP27, there was a decision to set up a transitional committee which will look into these issues and which will make recommendations to parties for their consideration at COP28. So very important discussions ahead, but I expect also very challenging discussions. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, I think it was one of the the most optimistic things that came out of COP27. So 2023, very important uh, year uh, once again for international climate action. And we will be coming back to many of the issues that were mentioned on the episode that we've done here today. Over the course of the year, we'll be talking more about loss and damage. We'll have a special episode on reforming the international financial system. We'll be talking about fossil fuel phase-out and the politics around that. So please do stay tuned and also feel free to look back on episodes we've done in the past. You can find The Climate Briefing on Spotify, on the Chatham House website and on all major podcast outlets. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks very much. Bye.